0: Have you ever had the experience of looking at something and the longer and more intently that you look at it, what you come to discover is that there's more to that thing than you initially thought. Maybe you've had this experience with something like a flower where you've looked at a flower and thought that's pretty. And then when you went closer, when you bent down to actually look at it, you see all the depth that it actually looks quite three-dimensional or maybe you've seen, like I have, a picture of an insect like a bee that's taken up close and all of a sudden you realize, wow, it's actually quite fuzzy and there's all this, again, 3D stuff going on. There's more depth to it. Maybe you've had the experience of looking at the moon through a telescope and rather than just seeing the moon like we do in the sky and we're like, often like, wow, okay, that's pretty and it's quite flat and, and even. As you've looked through the telescope, what you discover is there's all these contours and shapes, and again, depth to it, the more intently that you look at it. I believe that this experiencing experience of finding depth, discovering depth, the longer that we look at it, is something that happens quite often when we look at God's Word, when we look at the Bible. Many times over the years, I've had the opportunity to read God's word. And as I've done that, there have been moments where the Holy Spirit has done a work and I've seen the depth to what God's word is saying. And I say that God has done a work because I really believe that that's true, that when it comes to reading God's Word, it's not about our intellect or our knowledge or our ability to understand. But really what happens is something very spiritual where God's Holy Spirit is at work and illuminates truth, helps us to see the depth of that scripture. Jesus himself said in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit was called the Spirit of truth and that when he came that he would guide us into all truth. One of the places in God's word where this seems to happen quite often, where we look at a passage and then all of a sudden start to see more and more depth as the Holy Spirit works, is in the book of Psalms. That word psalm means simply song and and it has ties back to originally coming from the Greek language. And so that's often what we think. When we think of the book of Psalms in the Bible, we think that there, it's a book of songs or of biblical poetry. But the longer that you look at the book of Psalms, the more you start to discover that it isn't just ancient songs and poetry, that actually it's very worshipful, that it's very authentic, that there are people talking about hard real-life experiences, human experiences. And that also it's very instructive that there is truth in it that is good and nourishing and and instructive for our souls. The Psalms are rich with all of these things. They're rich with worship, rich with instruction, rich with human experience. And they're very varied. As you read through the 150 of them, there's a whole mix of different uh, experiences and and expressions throughout the book book of Psalms. I think because of the length of this book, Often as churches, we don't do series where we'll preach through the book of Psalms. And that's because there's 150 of them. It would take us maybe three years to preach through the book of Psalms. And so what we typically do instead is we refer to the Psalms. Sometimes when we're preaching, we'll say, well, in Psalms, it says this. And, and another thing that we often do is in our church services, our gatherings, we'll read from a Psalm. We'll say, well, I'm going to read the Psalm as we start our time of worship. But that's not what we're going to do today, and it's not what we're going to do in the coming weeks. We're actually going to study directly from the Psalms. We're going to take a sampling of Psalms. We're going to look at seven Psalms over the the coming weeks. And my hope is that this would really stir for you, and it would stir for me, a greater appetite to be in the Psalms and ingesting the Psalms, enjoying the Psalms. In our tour, as we go through these seven Psalms, we're going to see a variety of things. There'll be some psalms that are very instructive. They'll feel a little bit like a wise grandfather, a loving grandfather, putting his arm around us and saying, "Hey, let me let me teach you, let me lead you." Other psalms will feel very worshipful. They'll feel like we're in some sort of uh, song or festival where people are singing out about God's power and creativity. Other psalms are going to feel. There's one psalm in particular I'm thinking of that we're going to look at that feels quite raw and even dark as people relate about their experience and even the depression that they're feeling. We could start looking at the book of Psalms today as we start this seven-week series from a number of different places, but I think logically it makes sense and it is a really great Psalm for us to go to Psalm 1. And so as that seems fitting to me, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalms is pretty easily found in the Bible usually because it's right in the middle of the Bible. And so as you're turning there to Psalm 1, what you're going to find is a fairly short Psalm. And so we're going to read the whole thing together, the whole book, sorry, the whole chapter here. It says this, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As we read this psalm, how does it make you feel? As we read, it's kind of like a picture that draws for us two alternate lives, two alternate realities. One is the life of blessing, the life of seeking God. And the other is the slippery slope down to the life of wickedness. Now that word wicked, let's talk about that for a moment, because that's not a word that we typically use in our modern English language. uh, Unless maybe we're a 90s surfer, right? Like You would talk about having a wicked wave, a wicked surf, you know, but that's not something that we typically do. But this word wicked actually shows up four times in this short psalm. So if you look up this word wicked in a Bible dictionary, what it will tell you is that it means somebody who is morally wrong or actively a bad person. It means somebody who is condemned or guilty or ungodly. So we tend to read this psalm, and we want to be on the path of blessing, not the alternate path, the path of wickedness. The path of blessing sounds good to us, and it should, because that word blessing can be also translated as happy. Happy is the man. We could say that, and that sounds much better to us. And so as soon as we start reading, we want to ask ourselves the question of, well, how do I experience the blessing, how do I experience the happiness? And this is where this psalm really is a very instructive psalm. It starts first all first of all with a warning. It warns us about our company that we keep and our posture. I don't know if you notice the three descriptors that we have there. It says, you know, uh, well, let me read it with you again. It says, Blessed is the man, and here's the three descriptors. It says, that we are not to, who doesn't walk in the counsel or the advice of the wicked. It secondly says, who doesn't stand in the way, or that means along with or besides sinners. And then it goes on and thirdly says, who doesn't sit with scoffers. A scoffer is someone who mocks. I don't know if you notice as we read through that, as we think about those three postures, there's an increasingly intimate description. You know, it's one thing for us to walk alongside someone who is not a good influence, who is ungodly. That's, again, what that word wicked means. It's another thing for us to stand with somebody like that. And it's yet another thing for us to actually sit with them. This progression of walking to standing to sitting implies for us permanence and connection with those type of people. And so if we were to oversimplify what this first verse is saying, it's, it's this initial warning that says, if you want to be on the path of blessing, be very careful about who influences you. So before we go any further, perhaps that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Who influences you? Who influences me? Where, who do we walk with? Who do we stand with? Who do we sit with? And how are they rubbing off on you and on me? You see, we need to be very careful about who we let in and and how close we let people be to us because they will be an influence to us. They will rub off on us. We need to choose our friends wisely. We need to not just take the first friends that come along. In fact, when I was in student ministry many years ago, I I worked with high school or academy age students. And every year we would have our pastor come in at the end of the year and talk to the students, the pastor of the church there. And he had a background in college ministry. He loved this age group. And one of the things that he would say from all his years of experience is, guys, as you head out from home, don't just choose the first friends that come along. He said, choose and choose wisely the people that you associate with. And that's because he knew how much of an influence the people around us really are to us. Now, as I say all of these things, there may be a question lurking underneath these thoughts in your mind, and it certainly is in my mind. And that may, that's the question of, does that mean, does Psalms 1 mean that we should disassociate ourselves from people who don't believe the same things that we believe? If somebody—if we're a Christian, does that mean that we shouldn't be around or hang out with people who are not Christians? And, and my simple answer to that would be No. We are called to be in the world. If you read Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, he makes it very clear that we're called to be in the world, but yet different from the world around us. And so I have two quick thoughts for you here. One is we are to be in the world and to be influences on the world. We are to be a positive influence on those around us. We are to point towards Jesus. Secondly, We need to be very careful about who and what are influences on us. Perhaps we need to think about influences on us beyond just the typical means. Often when we think about influences, we think about friends or maybe family members. But what are the other influences in our life? I mean, that's not a question that we stop and think about too often. But what has been, what currently is influential in your life? Is there an influence on you that's ungodly? Is there something that is like this psalm, a voice of scorn in your life? Something that pushes against God, pushes against the faith that you profess and the influence in a bad direction? Maybe it's some of the content that you watch. Maybe there's a television show or a television series. Maybe it's uh, a podcast that you listen to, or music that you listen to, or well, I, I don't know what it may be, but there's many things that influence us. We need to be very careful. It is careful with us. Whatever influence there is, it will ultimately have an effect of it on us. I want you to picture with me a boat that is tied up by a rope to a dock. And as a storm comes through and blows against that boat, and as the wind and the waves whip up against that side of that boat, the rope begins to pull and pull and pull again. It's being influenced by the wind and by the rain. And as it all comes in, it pulls and pulls, and eventually it breaks. It has an impact. It ultimately has a cumulative impact, and, and it leads to disaster as that boat is set adrift. And we too can't just continue to be influenced by things that are against God and against His ways and not imagine that at some moment it won't bring disaster in our lives. And so we very carefully need to think about what influences we have in our life. As we read through verse 1, all these thoughts come into some sort of category that we could call the what not to do category or the what not to do section. And as we move on to verse 2 in this psalm, what we discover is the what to do section. So we've been told that we should be careful what not to do, who not to associate with. But as it goes on into verse 2, it tells us this. It says, but his delight is in, as in if we want to be the person of blessing who receives happiness, our delight should be in the law of the Lord. And on his law, we should meditate day and day and night. It tells us about delight and meditation on God's law. If you were asked to describe to somebody what that word delight means, how would you describe it? I thought about this question and and as I thought about it, I think I would say that delight means to intensely enjoy something. We are called to intensely enjoy God's word, God's instruction. And we're called to reflect on it constantly. I, I don't know if you picked up on it there, but it said that the instruction is to ponder, to reflect on it day and night, as in all the time. It isn't hard for us to think about something that we intensely enjoy. I'll give you an example. I delight, I intensely enjoy in my children. They're lo- they're lovely. I mean, most of the time, I, I delight in my children. And because of that, I think about them all the time. They're constantly on my mind. Often through a day, I'll think of them and, and wonder how they're doing at school or wonder what's going on or think about something that we can do together. And that's because I intensely enjoy them. When we delight in God himself, delighting in his word and thinking about that His Word all the time will be something that naturally happens. So if we're careful about what influences us, like in verse 1, and if we're influenced by God's Word, and which we just love and, and we naturally want to do, what should we expect? That's what verse 2 has told us, and that leads us into verse 3. What should we expect? And so in verse 3, what it says to us is that He is like a tree. So when all of that happens, we will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. What's detailed for us here is another picture, and it's a picture of a tree, a tree that is fruitful in its season is what it says. And then secondly, a tree that is healthy and strong and vibrant. It says it doesn't wither because it's beside the stream. And so if you're struggling to picture what the author is trying to tell us here, the next line actually just clarifies. It says, in all that he does, he prospers. So if you're not getting the picture, it says, hey, it's, it's good. He prospers. And we typically focus on the tree because as we read this psalm, we see, oh, okay, this is an instruction. I want to be like the tree. We see ourselves in the psalm. But there's actually two word images here in this psalm that show up, and they don't just show up in the psalm. They actually show up throughout the Bible. The first is, yes, the tree that we've talked about. And in the Bible, what we find is that a tree often represents life and growth. In fact, you've got tree imagery all throughout the Scripture, and the ultimate point of a tree is Jesus who died on the cross, the tree and life that flowed out from that moment. And so we have that imagery all throughout the Bible, but we also have the imagery in the Bible of a stream or streams and rivers. And often this represents God. It represents his love. It represents his grace. Jesus stood up several times and said, I am living water. And if you go to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there's this beautiful picture of everything made new and right and perfect and right through the middle of it flowing from the throne of God himself, is a river. And so this imagery is all throughout the Bible. And the reason we need to understand this, the reason that the tree that we're reading about here in verse 3 is so strong and fruitful is not because of its own ability to be healthy. It is healthy. It is fruitful because it's plugged into something that feeds it. It's plugged into the stream. Just as if I had a lamp here in this room and if I was to just pull the lamp in, it would just be a lamp unless it was plugged in. Then it could do what it was meant to do. Because as you plug that lamp in and turn the switch on, it's being fed by a greater power. To prosper, we must be fed by something greater than ourselves. And that thing is God. The most important thing is in this scripture and in this image is not the tree, it's the stream, because the stream represents God. So if we're not fed by this living water, by God, what should we expect? We see that actually in the very next verse, in verse 4. It says this, the wicked are not so, here's the contrast again, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. If we're not fed by this living water, we will become dry like a husk. That's what chaff is. Chaff is this, the seed covering. It's just this light husk of a thing that's worthless. And verse 5, as we read on from there, actually, this, this whole picture becomes a little worse because it says, therefore, which as, it, as we read it, that it says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, And that therefore, what why that's there is it's saying because the ungodly are like a husk, they're dry, they're not drawing from the stream of God. It's saying that they, the ungodly, the wicked, will not stand in the judgment. They'll not be able to stand before God's righteous and holy judgment or in the congregation of the righteous. As we read this, we should not be able to read that without some great concern. This verse is the part, this verse 5, is the part of the whole psalm that should keep us awake at night. This is the part that should be concerning to us. What it's reminding us of is a reality that God is a God of justice. And we believe from what God has told us that He will come and judge all people for how they have lived their lives. And that includes you and I. And all of us, all of us are wicked We've all done things that are deserving of us to come to a moment where we will perish. I mean, if you look to the end of the psalm, verse 6, it says, But the way of the wicked will perish. That's what we all deserve. I mean, if you're struggling to believe that that's true about yourself, just think about this. If we could take some sort of projector and project onto a screen all the things that you've done that are bad or wrong in your entire life, all the things that you've thought that are evil? What would we see on that screen? I imagine we'd see a number, if it was my life, we'd see a number of bad things. We'd see a number of shameful things. We'd see a number of wrong things. We'd see selfishness. We'd see pride and and jealousy, all sorts of things. In fact, we'd see some bad fruit that are are actually listed out in another book of the Bible in in Galatians chapter 9. I'm actually just going to turn there to Galatians, sorry, Galatians, not Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, it talks about the works of the flesh, the things that we should expect from wickedness, from the influences of wickedness and the own wickedness in and of ourselves. It says this in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, all these things, all the things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are all guilty in different ways of things that are on this list or things that even didn't make the list that are wrong and that are evil. And the only way for us to be made right with God, to be like someone puts it, in the congregation of the righteous is for you and I to die and to be born again. We must die. We must die to the old wicked self and be reborn in Christ. That's what the symbolism of baptism is all about. When somebody goes under that water, it symbolizes their death. They are buried, the old self, the wicked self, and out comes a new person connected to the stream, connected to God, now able to start to bear fruit. And as they start to bear fruit in season, as someone put it, puts it what should we expect that fruit to look like and I, I bring you back to galatians 5 again read verse 22 with me it says this but the fruit of the spirit as in the fruit that comes when we are connected to god the stream the stream it says the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control against such things there is no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and all its passions and desires. Psalm 1 points us to Jesus because as we stop and reflect, as we look at the depth that is in this psalm, and as we look with honesty in our own hearts, what we realize is that without him, we are the wicked. Without Him, we cannot produce any fruit that is good. Without Him, our future looks very bleak. But with Jesus, who said, by the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we can connect to something that is greater than ourselves and become fruitful and become prosperous. Does that mean That the Christian life is guaranteed to be easy? Definitely not. I mean, look at some of the biblical characters. Their lives were not easy. They were actually quite hard. Or if you read through church history, you'll find a number of people who love, dearly love God, who lived very hard lives. I mean, even if you look at your own experience, if you've been a Christian for some time, you'll be able to say, no, we're not guaranteed ease, but... When our roots go deep down into Him, down into that stream, it doesn't matter when the drought comes. It doesn't matter when the storm comes. We can hold fast. We can continue to draw nourishment. And in due course, in season, we can produce fruit again. And so do you know the secret hero of this psalm? The secret hero of this psalm is the stream. It is God. Do you know Him? Do you delight in Him? Do you intensely enjoy Him? And do you intensely enjoy His Word? Are you being careful about who influences your life? As you take some time, I want to encourage you to just Reflect on these questions. As you gaze deeply into this psalm and deeply into your heart, ask yourself the question, what is God saying to you from Psalm chapter 1? May God give you wisdom. May His Spirit give you insight as you reflect on this psalm and ask yourself, what is God saying to you today?